Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Most of the parents I work with are relentlessly lovers of their kids. Yes. And what that leads to is they misperceive that their job is to relentlessly parent their kids. Huh. Oh, that's, that's and, good. And what our job really is, is to relentlessly love our kids enough to parent them as little as possible. And that's not intuitive. I thought you were going to say that's scary. <laughs> it, it is scary, too. This is Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, and that clip was part of a conversation we heard last month from Michael Anderson. He and his co-author, Dr. Timothy Johansson, want to challenge some of your preconceptions and expectations as a mom or a dad. And they also want to help you aim at the right things as a parent. You know, parenting can be a daunting task, can't it? It doesn't come with a manual per se. You've got to do it. And so often as parents, we feel like somehow we're going to know the right thing to do. And I would say, uh, even for Gene and I, that's not true. Uh, You can do so many things wrong. And if you just have a little bit better insight and information about how to approach uh, those young kids, those teenagers with a little different perspective, I hope a biblical perspective, uh, things can go much better. And we're going to pour into you today. If you're struggling as a parent, uh, this program is for you. And we're going to talk about the last time these two were with us and kind of refresh you. But it is wonderful to have our guests back. And again, they are Michael Anderson. He's a licensed psychologist. And Dr. Timothy Johansson is a professor and pediatrician, and they've spent decades uh, studying kids, uh, how they grow up, and they specialize in helping parents with difficult children. Uh, Gentlemen, welcome back to Focus on the Family. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. You know, you really have hit some amazing things in this book, GIST. Uh, How did you come up with that title, GIST? Well, that's a long story. Uh, (laughs) we, We probably went through over 200 titles. Wow. The gist of it? What is well, it? Well, um, it ended up being kind of a, the trend now is a one-word kind of title, whether it's a movie or a book. And we wanted to have a title that talked about the essence of something. And and so just uh, came to us from a person who uh, we, we asked to help with kind of branding and titling this book. And we kind of didn't like it initially. And then <laughs> as we thought about it, my wife added the subtitle, uh, the essence of raising life-ready kids, and it just seemed to fit. You know, in that context, uh, last time, just to recap for the listeners that didn't hear that program, and again, you could download it for free, come to our website, it was so eye-opening because there were so many counterintuitive things there. For example, you encourage parents not to try so hard. Um, and in fact, you talked about <laughs> stop talking so much, mom and dad. That's really uh, counterintuitive to me because you want to correct, you want to give your you know godly advice <laughs> to well, your teenager. And, and a lot of parents really think that if they're not talking, they're not parenting. And right. we really feel that that's not true, uh, that you should parent as best you can, but with as few words as possible. I want to tell you a story that happened that was really powerful to me. Tim and I spoke at a high school, and a woman was waiting in the wings after we spoke, and she wanted to talk, and I could see her waiting and waiting and waiting. She was desperate. She Well, she actually, it was something else. She came up, and I was waiting for kind of a desperate thing, but she said, I came here to tell you a story. I heard you speak three months ago, and I read your book, and I have an eight-year-old daughter, and my husband and I sat down with her, and we said to her, We realized after hearing Mike and Tim and reading this book that we've been parenting you without really seeing your baseline on what you can do. This is an eight-year-old. And we told her, this is a mom and a dad, 
starting Monday morning, we're going to let you get up on your own, do your homework on your own, watch TV on your own, and we'll watch that for two weeks, and then we'll step in as needed. So it's kind of like the rudder of a ship, you know. When the ship's going the right direction, the rudder does nothing. Hmm. And that's a difference about our approach versus a parent that's parenting kids that are going the right direction just as much as a kid that's not. So she tells me the rest of the story. She says, um, that was three months ago, not a week or two or a month. And she said, since that time, our daughter has gone to bed on her own, done her homework on her own, cleared her dishes on her own, and we have done nothing for three months. She has a chance to show what she's made of. And she wants that challenge. And she wants that challenge. And they were, in essence, taking yeah, that and opportunity away? The, mom, the away. mom started to cry, and she said, last night we were watching The Voice as a family, and my daughter got up and said, Dad, can you DVR the rest of the show because I have homework to do? Hmm. And she said, "It break, and she, or I said, what are your tears about? And she said, it breaks my heart to think all we would have said and all that we would have controlled without ever seeing how capable she was. Wow. It's kind of the difference between, um, you know, you hear about teachable moments all the time, and we think that's kind of a misnomer. To us, we were talking about this this morning, it's a rudder moment, like you just described, or it's a stealing moment where the parents are actually stealing the opportunity for the child to show what they're made of. And we really encourage parents not to intervene and steal that and, and pull them along. The, the analogy of the ship, I think, is good. Are you going to be a rudder parent or are you going to tow the ship? Or are you going to drag your child through the water to get them to move forward? Or are you going to be behind them, steering them in the right direction? Uh, and there's a big difference. And I hear what you're saying, and I, I get it. Uh, let me speak on behalf of those parents with the 8-year-old that they have tried something similar. Maybe they haven't read your book just yet, but they get the idea. And that 8-year-old or 10-year-old or maybe 15-year-old isn't responding quite like that. You give them that latitude, well, that was, and that they're was, not doing the homework. That was a possibility or even a likelihood that that would happen with this person. Right. But there's nothing to lose. She told her daughter, we're going to give you two weeks, and if you need help before two weeks, we'll even step in then. But they were trying to get a baseline yeah. on what their daughter can do without so much guidance, teaching, talking, all yeah. these things. I really appreciate that. And one of the difficulties I think we face in the Christian community, I'd love for you to speak to this, is you know, when we commit our lives to Christ, or maybe we grew up in a Christian home and we followed the rules and it worked well for us, you're applying that kind of rules-oriented environment because uh, we have a high regard for that. We want to be honoring to the Lord. We want to do the right things behaviorally to show our allegiance to Him. Put that in a parenting context, especially in the Christian home where rules are important. And when you step back, there's so much risk in that. There's so much danger in that. Uh, speak to that Christian parent about the uh, the role of rules and the importance of preparation for their launch. Well, I think rules are important, but I read just read a book. I'm a big sports fan. I read, read a book by a great football coach, and he said, I'm looking for players that are obedient but not too obedient because if they're too obedient, they don't have the passion in themselves hmm. to bring to the field. And I thought that's a good metaphor for parenting is – some of the stuff that about guidance, are we really putting that scriptural principle on the kid in a wrong way? Um, 
Tim and I were talking, and I said, you know, imagine I have a daughter. He has a couple daughters. Imagine that they came downstairs in their mid-teens or junior high with a top on that wasn't appropriate. Okay, we would suggest that we say, take the top back up and keep the receipt because that's going back. Now, I can't think of anything more to say to teach than that. Hmm. I don't have to go and talk about why the top isn't appropriate because they know me. And so I think all this teaching is a little bit of a misnomer because we teach just as much by an example and by the rudder and by consequences. And we've misperceived it as a talking thing. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. It's time to level up. Give your kids a safe, faith-focused, and biblically-based community, and so much more. Join the Adventures in Odyssey Club. Club members get on-demand access to the exciting Adventures in Odyssey series, including more than 900 episodes. With faith-building activities, parental controls, and a safe online community, the Adventures in Odyssey Club could be your best adventure yet. Learn more and start your free trial at adventuresinodyssey.com radio. Just as we pick good food for our children, we want to make sure that we're picking good and spiritual nutrition for our children as well. And so I think providing them clubhouses has provided some of that spiritual nutrition for them. You can help your kids grow in their faith with Focus on the Family Clubhouse and Focus on the Family Clubhouse Junior Magazines. Great resources for your family at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Club Radio. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. I'd like to tackle the other parts of the book that we really weren't able to get into, and that was on communication between parents and children. Um, describe the idea of threats that you mentioned in the book. That that hits home for me. I probably relied too much on threats. If and, you don't, uh, then yeah, I exactly. will. No, it's more, and Jean would always say to me, you know, she put her hand on my arm and say, you know, that's a big threat for a pretty small infraction. It'd be something like, if you don't pick your socks up again for the 15th time, you're never eating again ever. <laughs> yeah, that's not quite it. But you get the idea. Why are the threats really not the tool in the toolbox to use? Well, I think threats, reminders, and warnings are things that Mike and I would say are very ineffective. And threats um, is a very common thing that parents use. Now, um, first of all, why do we go there? Why is it our it, instinct to go there? I think it's because we're frustrated with our child's behavior and we want it to get fixed really, really quick. And that's not the right mindset, mm. uh, in our opinion. I think threats are things that are vague. Uh, they tend not to uh, have a lot of meat behind them. You have to do this or else. Well, what does or else mean? You know, for the kid, they're like, does that mean I'm grounded? Does that mean I'm whatever? So I think threats are pretty ineffective. Um, warnings and reminders equally are ineffective. Give and, us an example of the warning and reminder. Uh, reminders, uh, we believe that parents who remind a lot create kids who forget a lot. So it creates that dependency. The yes. very thing that frustrates you, you're actually reinforcing. You're actually reinforcing, mm. and you're feeding into it. Um, and threats, reminders, and warnings are really telling your kid that they're failed in the past, they're failing now, or they're going to fail in the future. 
And that's what the kids feel inside uh, for uh, the situation where there's lots of threats and reminders. What happens uh, long-term for that 17-year-old now that's lived in that kind of parenting environment? Uh, describe that child for me. Well, we think about a parenting intervention as whether it elevates the total behavior of the child. And one of the reasons I don't like threats or warnings is it, it might get a kid to go out in the front yard and bring his bike in. But that just solved the problem once. And if he leaves his bike out the next time, you didn't really gain anything. So by not saying anything, without using those three things, but using a cost, kids, you, we can count on kids to be self-serving. So if it costs them to leave their bike on the yard, they're going to remember on their own, and they're not going to leave it out the next night, which will take another reminder or another threat. So I'm supposed to fine my child like a buck if they leave their bike outside? Is that what you're saying? It might take that, but there's other ways to be creative about it. It just has to cost them something. And Give us some examples of that, because yeah. I appreciate John's question there. Because I think, again, if you're living in the reminder parenting style or the uh, uh, threat parenting style. Well, take the example of the bike. Yeah. A 10-year-old yeah. doesn't put his bike away. It's sitting in the yard. Put the bike up on hooks in the top of the garage, and he can't reach it for a week. And don't say a thing. Just do it when he's not around. And uh, he'll come home the next day, want to use his bike. It's hanging up there. He can't get to it. And if he wants to ask about it, he will. And you can say, you didn't bring your bike in last night. You'll have it next Monday. And that's it. And that's it. That's unfair, um, Dad. D- don't argue with that. Yeah, you back <laughs> yeah, away from that. You just back away from that. There's no reason to engage with a kid who's saying that's not fair. And with good kids, it just takes two hours. They could lose their bike for two hours. You don't have to start with a week. Because a lot of kids really want to be good. Mm. It's not their desire to be bad kids. And they want their bike. But the follow-up might be the next week, I'm just saying, in just my a matter home. Of what if? No, a friend of mine <laughs> friend might of mine. have a child who would dog just the parent until they scream in frustration about, the, if, if I can't have the bike, then I can't do this, and I can't do that, and da-da-da-da-da. So there's a tendency to want to shut off that whining, that badgering, what do I do? I well, John, that... I actually had a daughter like that. Oh, good. So did I. I was tell <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, and you have your daughter's permission to talk about this. So uh, <laughs> She still hasn't gotten her bike, but that's yeah, another it's story. up in the garage. <laughs> what I, what I, She's 30 now. What worked, what worked beautiful with her was to say, this is the cost of what you did, but that's going to be lengthened if you badger me. We use the word badger. Oh, interesting. So it's not going to work to your advantage to stay, you know. So you only, let's say the bike, I don't remember that was an issue, but you lose your bike for three hours. If you stop talking now, <laughs> if you keep talking, it's going to be four hours. And if you keep coming down and mm-hmm. arguing and all that, then it's going to be a day or two yes. days or three days. So you just use it like that. Mm-hmm. And so disengagement's really important, and it needs to start at an early age. I tell parents in my clinic uh, with a three-year-old um, who's misbehaving in a certain way, they're trying to re-guide them and talk to them and distract them and get them into a different mode of thought. And I say, that's a lot of work for you to do. Mm. Just disengage and let them calm themselves. And when they're back to a normal state of mind, re-engage. And by doing that, you're giving them coping skills. Right. I mean, that's the the beauty of it. Yes, you're they're learning how to settle themselves down. Yeah, with disappointment, whatever it might right. be. One of the areas in gist that you touched on, which I think is so critical, because we sometimes laugh at ourselves the way we distort reality for our kids. You know, everybody gets a trophy. Everybody did wonderfully. Mm-hmm. 
even though that kid struck out 14 times <laughs> or whatever it might be. Tell me about why it's important to teach your kids knowing the truth as best as they can know it. It sounds like it's right out of the scripture. It is. I mean, that's what Jesus said to Pilate. I came to testify to the truth, and the truth is important to God, and the better we know truth and know ourselves that way, I think the healthier we are. Do you agree? Absolutely. And, and the scripture says not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And that means that we have to have an honest view of ourselves. And our kids get that from us. And it creates a lot of problems with kids. You know, I've often said that kids are running out of things that are like a track meet or a swim meet. And if your kid runs track and they came in eighth, you can't tell them they won. But there aren't very many things in life like that. So kids need honest feedback, and they get a tremendous sense of stability. It's almost a ballast in their life when they know that their parent will tell them the truth. And they'll tell them the truth about how good a singer they are, how talented they are, how tall they are, how athletic they are. And there's a way to do that lovingly, and it gives kids a different kind of self-esteem. It's really let's, powerful. You know, if I could, let's just role play that a bit for sure. the parents out there. So I'm the eight-year-old. I did strike out four times today at the Little League game. I'm not hitting the ball well. I'm batting ninth. Mm -hmm. And you're dad. Okay. And we're walking away from that Little League game, and I say to you, Dad, man, I just don't feel like I can hit that ball. Kids laugh at me because I can't hit it. Yeah. And I would say this was not a good game. Absolutely. Now, it's still, we still don't know for sure if you could learn to play better with practice, or maybe you're not cut out for baseball. That'll mm -hmm. take some time. So that's a real honest assessment of where that child is at and what they may or may not be able to do. Absolutely. And even if your child's face gets sad when they hear that, it's still a gift. It's a gift because it gives them the confidence to know that I can assess my – we need to protect kids' radar. That's a big part of self -esteem. What do you mean by that, protect their radar? Well, radar is our ability to see a room, to see a situation, to um, know ourselves – and the more we lie to our kids, the more we distort their radar. Huh. And so the kid says, well, I have these friends at school and these kids on the team. And the fact that I'm riding the bench that tells me this, and then my parents are telling me this, and my radar is messed up now. I can't pick up what's really happening here. Oh, that's interesting. What are those signs, Tim, where we're missing it? I mean, we talked about the right way to handle something like that to help the child's radar improve and to better understand who they are and what their gifts and their talents may or may not be. What are the mistakes we make as parents with that kid? Let us see that. When you're walking away from that Little League game, what shouldn't a dad or a mom say to yeah, that? I, I don't think they should say, you just don't know play baseball. You're a terrible batter. And they shouldn't tell them that you're the best player on the team. Um, that's the problem with uh, after You're not saying tell them you're a terrible batter. No, you're saying I'm, guard them that way. Yeah. But be real say, with them and say, well, that's them. something you got to work on. And yeah, and Mike and I talk about uh, when you tell the truth to your kids, it needs to be loving and encouraging, but most importantly, it needs to be accurate. It needs to reflect the reality for them. Uh, and some parents don't like to go there. Um, yeah. they, they want to build up this false self in their child. And that's very damaging. Well, and we're, our culture is full of that right now, isn't it? Especially with social up that, media. That false self. Right. And yeah, the, Facebook the, is false self. Yeah, because you're is. putting your best foot forward all the time. Yeah. Whether you're a teenager or whether you're 65. 
<laughs> so we may need a little bit of that truth serum. And parents generally don't realize they're adding stress to their kids' lives by doing that. Yeah. How? Why do we need to open our eyes to that? How because does that I don't know, work? I know a lot of things. <laughs> My career has been talking to kids in stress. I don't know anything that stresses them more than a kid that has no exceptional traits being told that they're exceptional. Hmm. Because they don't have the ability to live up to the expectation. And that's really stressful. And we have lost, I'm going to generalize here, as a culture, we've kind of lost the magnificence and the beauty and the tremendous wonderfulness of being normal. And we put kids, hmm. kids today that come in my office feel it's an insult to be called normal. And we've, as adults, we've done that. And that's something we want to delve into uh, when we come back next time, and we're going to get there. And uh, I'm excited about that because, again, this is so important for parents to get a hold of, but it's so counterintuitive. That's why I love your book, Gist. Uh, before we leave today, though, the point I wanted to punch, and you talk about it in the book, uh, is this idea of loving your kids. Most parents know how to love their kids. And why is that so important that your child feels loved by you as the parent? Well, I think um, kids need to be loved in a way that they know you are a straight shooter, that you're going to tell them the truth. It will give them a feeling of safety and security beyond anything else. And kids need – one of the ways we um, express love to our kids is spending time with them one-on-one. -on -one. And that's a really important thing is – to enter their life and their interests. If a kid loves the Civil War history, take a trip with your kid to Gettysburg or something. Well, what are those important ingredients in expressing love to your child? And spending time with them is certainly one, yeah, a very important one. But spending time one-on-one -on -one with them. So the family time uh, isn't always, you need that, but you need one-on-one -on -one time as well. Yeah. Love is conveyed. It, when you spend time with a kid one-on-one, -on -one, you often see a different side of that child, and yeah. you bond with them, and it creates a salient memory. And when they're older, when they're an adult, they'll talk about that mm -hmm. trip that dad and I took, or and they won't really talk that much about a family trip. And that's a, an area where if you have two or three kids, sometimes for Gene and I, we've not done that well because we do everything together, whether it's camping or what, whatever it might be. And that's probably an area for me personally that I have to be more mindful of, spend separate time with Trent and Troy. Yeah. And family and, time is important, sure. but it's overrated. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, just uh, to piggyback on what Mike said, kids will remember the individual time with grandpa or dad or mom. They, um, that's what they'll talk about. That's what they're that, going to talk that's about when make they're an 30. Impression. Yeah. Uh, they're going to say, oh, I just loved it when Nani and I used to cook or bake cookies or when dad and I would go fishing. Mm -hmm. um, you also mentioned the love trap, and I don't want to get away today without mentioning that. What did you uh, express in the book about love trap and avoid the love trap? Well, we want so much to love our kids and for them to know that they're loved, that they have a power, a magic wand, and it is to say, I know you don't love me because you took mm -hmm. away the car or you did something. So if you love me, you wouldn't yeah, you've made me unhappy. Yeah, so you, you don't wouldn't love search me. my room. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is if you love me, you wouldn't create this much pain in me, which is kind of a blame thing. But the love trap is that when parents buy into that, and um, your job is to raise your kid and get them ready for adulthood, and your job is to love your kid, but that has to be a higher priority than your relationship. 
because your child can ruin the relationship without you, but they can't ruin your love. I've got to uh, ask you one last question, but before we do, man, this has been so good, uh, Tim and Michael. What a wonderful uh, conversation. You're kind of turning the parenting world upside down, Mm -hmm. but I also think you're tapping into something that God used in dealing with his people. Um, Somebody like King David, for example, he was not living up to the law, to the godly standards, but the Lord dealt with him in such a wonderful way. Um, David made his mistakes, but he would come back, he would be contrite and ready to serve again. And I think uh, God's heart was for David because of that contriteness. He knew that he was guilty and he admitted it. And that's a great lesson for all of us as parents. That's the goal, to put that kind of tenderness in your child's heart so they know when they're falling short. The lesson I take away from it is God is always faithful even when we're not. He's always there Mm -hmm. with us. Um, Let me encourage you to support the ministry here at Focus on the Family. Uh, Let's do this together. We need to be partners. And for a gift of any amount, either monthly or one time, we will say thank you for that partnership by sending you a copy of GIST, The Essence of Raising Life-Ready Kids. It is a wonderful resource, and we'd love to hear from you. And you can make that pledge or one-time gift at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast, or when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459. Tim and Michael, let me ask you this. Uh, For the parent that has that 16, 17, 18-year-old, and they have not heard this before, and they have blown it, they have had years of struggle and battle with that now teenager, and the relationship is frayed. You're seeing this all the time in your practices. Absolutely. What is something that we can do differently tonight if we have blown it in this way? Where do we start expressing it differently to our teenager in a way that they can catch it? What can we say? What can we do? I think it starts with us asking them for forgiveness for how we have blown it. I think when we do that as parents uh, and are very honest about that, the kids um, appreciate that. They'll respond. They'll respond to that. And I think what you describe usually is a situation where there hasn't been a lot of that. And maybe there's been some that's been not completely uh, honest, uh, and they really need to say, I really have kind of blown my job here in raising you up, and you're falling behind in certain ways, and now we have two years left, and I want to start there. Those are great thoughts. Again, thank you so much for being with us. We'll come back next time and pick up the conversation. Hopefully, I know, uh, put more thoughts and ideas and parenting uh, approaches into the hands of the parents and grandparents listening. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And we're looking forward to part two of the conversation next time, and I hope you can be with us then. At our website, we have a free parenting assessment, which takes just a few minutes to fill out. It's a survey that uh, will provide you with an honest look at your family's strengths and maybe some areas where you need some improvement. Uh, You can check that out at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family.
Stay tuned. Hi, Jim Daly here. Today's culture deeply needs help, but in times like these, the light of Christ can shine even brighter. So be encouraged to share his light in this broken world. Listen to the Refocus with Jim Daly podcast. Without time limitations, I'll have deep, heartfelt discussions with fascinating guests who will encourage you to share God's grace, truth, and love. Check out the podcast at refocuswithjimdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we really encourage parents not to intervene and steal that and, and pull them along. The, the analogy of the ship, I think, is good. Are you going to be a rudder parent? Or are you going to tow the ship? Or are you going to drag your child through the water to get them to move forward? Or are you going to be behind them, steering them in the right direction? Uh, and there's a big difference. Mm, some good thoughts from Dr. Timothy Johansson. And he and his co-author, Michael Anderson, are back with us today on Focus on the Family talking about better ways that you can communicate with your child. These gentlemen have written a great book called Just the Essence of Raising Life-Ready Kids, and we've got it at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. I'm John Fuller, and your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. John, we had a wonderful conversation last time with Michael and Tim, and I'm looking forward to more of that today. If you missed it, you got to get the download or go to the website, uh, get the app, and listen that way. Parents want help because the, I think in part uh, the culture and our own uh, inability to parent well is creating a need that we need to uh, help build up your parenting ability. Don't feel shy about that. Don't feel embarrassed about that. It doesn't come with a manual. Uh, you know, we're taught how to be CPAs and how to be doctors and how to be other things. But parenting, it's almost as if, hey, good luck with that. And we look in scripture, we're trying to find godly advice. You're going to find it today. And we are excited about our guests. And they are uh, Dr. Tim Johansson, a professor and pediatrician from Arizona, and Mike Anderson, a licensed psychologist from Minnesota. They uh, have spent decades working with children and families and have a passion to help parents, yes, mom and dad, even with your most challenging parenting circumstances. Tim and Michael, welcome back to Focus on the Family. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, it is always good to talk with you. You have really tapped into something with your book, Gist. Um, it feels counterintuitive, uh, but to recap from last time, talking about backing away from some of those communication disasters, and I'm sure most parents have had that situation where you have gotten into a real argument or discussion or firm talk uh, with that teenager or maybe a child who's a bit younger, eight, nine-year-old, who's showing some self-determination and a little bit of strong will, and you're going, whoa, where's that coming from? Uh, it's refreshing to uh, think of new ways to do this. And I would encourage all of you listening to open your heart, open your mind about how to do this more effectively. That's the goal. We talked last time about the ways we communicate with our children and I thought you had some great tools there for parents to think differently about engaging. Um, I, I learned many things the last time we talked. One area that we didn't address is fear. Um, you believe fear can become a huge barrier between parents and children. And in fact, you say we use self-protection strategies uh, that I think mask that bad behavior uh, to protect ourselves. So explain what you're driving at there. Well, a lot of things that we think are personality traits, like rage and other things like perfectionism, are really ways that we try to protect our psyche. And um, 
each one of those, and I, you know, years ago I thought, well, there, here's the first six, and then years later I couldn't add a seventh one to it. So I thought, well, these are the ones. There's blame and self-contempt and perfectionism and rage and control and withdrawal. Hmm. And almost every kid that I see and every parent that's scared about how their kid's turning out or how they're doing or how their marriage is going is implementing one of these self-protection strategies. Say them again so we can hear them clearly. Well, there's withdrawal, rage, blame, perfectionism, self-contempt, and power. And how do we, as parents, uh, discern between what can be normal teen behavior, for example, where there might be a little bit of withdrawal, it could be not unhealthy. Where's that line? How do we know when it's becoming unhealthy in these areas? We believe in looking at a kid's overall functioning level. And when it's effect- any of those are affecting their overall functioning level, it's an issue. Somebody's scared. Uh, a kid that doesn't get invited, when all of his friends are getting together and they withdraw in their room, they're scared that they're on the outs with their peer group. Yeah. And we start need to start looking at these things as, not that we need to do anything different, but we need to look at them. As there's fear going on here. Well, it's really helpful to read these. In fact, Rage, as an example, you said in the book, you said your child is essentially saying, get away from my emotions yes. when that child is raging. That was an epiphany for me. And when you as a parent can contextualize why these emotions are coming out of your, your child, it may give you a better understanding and better empathy. Are there more nuggets like that? Uh, with the other emotions that our children will express? Yeah, I think each of the six forms of self-protection have kind of roots behind them. And if kids are overusing one of those, that's where we have problems. Um, and there's consequences to overusing things like rage. If you overuse rage, you're telling everybody to get away from me right now. Um, you end up being kind of left alone. Huh. And ultimately, you're going to be lonely People who are blamers, if that's rooted and they don't want to take responsibility for their actions, the consequence of blaming all the time is they never mature and grow up. And people look at them like, you're, you know, 28 going on eight. Right. That type of thing. Talk about the role that our faith should play within this kind of dynamic. How does our faith feed into this? Um, you know, your teenager, if they have that commitment to Christ, they must be having an incredible struggle inside their hearts because they're behaving in ways that they know are not um, helpful and are not pleasing the Lord. They're wise enough to understand that, yet they're by training, they've defaulted to this kind of behavior where they may rage or they may speak disrespectfully, whatever it might be. How do you help connect those dots as a parent for that child? The first thing I would say is parents shouldn't panic in that situation. It's hard not to do It's that. hard not to, but we have certain behavioral expectations that are based on our faith and what we read in Scripture. And when that's not happening, I think one of our first impulses as parents is to panic. Our kid is not behaving in the way that God really intends them to behave. And now, are they falling away from the faith? Are we, you know, we go to these next levels of thinking and almost overthinking things. And each of our kids went through periods of time where their behavior was like, what has happened? Who are they? (laughs) So you had the experience too. (laughs) Absolutely. Just know (laughs) that they're going through periods of time of development. The adolescent brain is 
unbelievable. Right. What happens between the ages of 12 and 25, it's incredible. And again, these are protection modalities that we're talking about. They're yes. trying to protect something. They're insecure. They live in a comparative culture. They don't know what direction. They're afraid of growing up. All of, all, the these, all of these things yeah. are daunting to most teenagers. Mm. And uh, teenagers who say that they're not afraid of growing up may not be telling the complete truth. And we see the, the ones like rage and um, withdrawal as being a bigger concern, but perfectionism is a concern too. Mm. And you see a kid that's a valedictorian or something, and they can't live with making a mistake. And that should be just as big a concern to a parent as something else. Yeah, I can remember somebody gave some advice. You know, if you have that straight A student, you might want to let them know if they should get a B, that's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had that situation, and the biggest smile broke out on my one son's face. It was like, it's okay. It's important to let some of that pressure out. They they naturally are high achievers, Mm -hmm. but you've got to allow them to uh, know that failure within that right, proper context is maybe a healthy thing. So they'll learn things through that failure, right? I was speaking at a group of parents one time, and a mom raised her hand, and I was talking about working on one or two things at a time. And she raised her hand, and she said, I don't know what to work on with my daughter. And um, I said, tell me about her. And she said, well, she's an A student, and she plays violin, and she's the head of her youth group. And she stopped talking, and she started to tear up. And she said, my daughter knows nothing about failure. And I didn't even have to answer her question. She answered it herself. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. What is building up your teen girl's belief system? And that's the main thing, actually, that I've gotten from Debrio Magazine since I've gotten them, is just how to stay strong in your faith and how to just Every day, rely on God for everything, even if you're having a wonderfully good day or just an absolute terrible one. Discover how Brio Magazine can capture the heart and faith of your teen girl at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Brio Radio. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. I'm curious, what did you tell her? I mean, she came to that that point of saying, my child doesn't know how to fail, but did you encourage her to put her into a circumstance where she could, or what happens there? I didn't because she just, I saw the light bulb of comprehension go off in her brain, and so it wasn't a setting. But it's a very good question she could have asked, and I think it would have been a good conversation to say, you know, you're doing wonderful in life, but the thing I'm concerned about is you can't make it through life without failure or resilience, and I don't think you've experienced that much. So do you go off and seek an opportunity then, or just have your eyes open for that? Well, I think to have your eyes open, but if you could collectively go and say, let's push you a little farther, you know? I mean, a kid that doesn't fail in normal life might fail, experience failure at MIT or Harvard or something like that, so you can push them harder and get them into a community drama or a higher level of sports and let them know that's why you're doing that, Mm. because they need to experience failure. This is an example that Mike talked about several years ago when we first started this whole manuscript um, about a really high-performing, high-achieving kid who's got straight A's. 
And it's clearly that perfectionism is coming out with anxiety and, and issues like that. Michael tells a story about uh, asking the parents to pay them $100 not to study for final exams. <laughs> that's and counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive. <laughs> but that's what the kid needed to hear is yeah. I will reward you for not overdoing the studying thing anymore. You know, again, right now, parents are shaking their heads because they may have that high-achieving child and uh, they're doing well, but they're missing, the parent is missing what you're talking about. Where that's coming from. Why is it so critical? I mean, we've hit it, but I want to hear it again. Why is it so critical for that 16, 17-year-old girl who's doing well, is on honor roll every semester? Why does she need to feel um, inadequate? To understand that, in my mind, you have to understand that both the high school dropout and the valedictorian can be shame-based. And shame is really a silent killer in our culture. And what the antidote to shame is living in the middle. I tell people that come to me that want to work on shame that every day they need to tell themselves that they're not as good a person as they think they are on the days they think they're good, and they're not as bad a person as they think they are on the days they think they're bad. And when we live in the middle, we can grace ourselves and we can realize that we're not going to go through a day or a week perfect. And we can forgive ourselves. And when we use perfectionism to self-protect, we get in what is called a positive shame cycle. And that's a person that doesn't feel shame because they're working so hard to not tell the truth about themselves to themselves. That is so powerful and so good. In the book, you have a section where you talk to parents about uh, being careful with what they say. Now, every parent just went, ouch, because often we as parents will say things that are right out in the open very quick, and then you regret saying it. Mm -hmm. And so there's grace for that situation. But to help us think differently, uh, you mentioned a few of these phrases that we as parents commonly use. One was, just do your best. And you speak to the damage that that causes. To me, that sounds like a very positive. Just try your hardest. You know, do your best. Put your talents. Why is that not a smart thing to say as a parent? Just do your best is an okay thing to say to an athlete at halftime. Because do your best. We can all do our best for a couple hours. And we know what that means. Catch the ball, throw the ball, block the guy. If you have a child that's going into a big unit test at school, do your best on the test. But we can't do our best for life. So the only two options left for us are to lie to ourselves that we did our best when we didn't or to feel like a failure because we didn't do our best. So it's an unhelpful thing to say to our kids. What's better? What do we say that's more constructive? A far more better thing to say is exactly what you want your child to do. If you have a child that's taking basketball serious, instead of do your best, you say, I want you to shoot 100 threes today in the backyard, or I want you to do two math assignments, or I want you to clean your room. Do your best is a riddle, is really what it is. For the child. They can't figure out what you mean. Yeah, and it is for us, too, because we think that we're guiding our child when we're actually steering them off the road. Is it because there are too many vague aspects to do your best? Yes. Yes. Doing your best means that I've done everything possible every waking hour of the day to have the right outcome, which means if I ate junk food or watch TV, I didn't do my best. Okay, so over the weekend, uh, recently, please vacuum the floor. Well, I did my best, and it was a pretty bad job, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) So should I say, well, that was your best, but not my best, go do it again? 
Well, I in that case, I, I would think that that's been part of the family's vocabulary. Do the because a kid wouldn't normally say that okay. unless there was a payoff for okay, that. You're, you're getting a little close. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you open the door. Yeah. We're carrying this all <laughs> the way through. Get it man. to yourself. So I would, you know, vacuuming or or mowing the lawn. I think it'd be great to say. I want you to mow the lawn today, and I want you to give it the proper amount of time that it deserves hmm. instead of doing your best. We, you know, everybody that returns an email knows the point of diminishing returns. You're not going to spend an hour on an email when it should take five minutes. And kids need to learn this. And that's a more important thing for them to learn than doing their best. So... Um, I had the lawn mowing thing this weekend as well, so I'm really curious. What do you say then? I mean, the job isn't done well. I think you come back and be very precise about your expectations. Okay. But you need to buffer that with the age of the child and kind of what would be typical expectations. So my nine-year-old, who I'm asking to start uh, vacuuming the basement once a week, if they do a B-minus job, I'm okay with that. I think a 15-year-old should probably be doing a B-plus job. And so I think if they're not doing the kind of job you want them to do, then I think you need to be very precise about what your expectations are. John, I think it conveys a reasonableness to the kid to say, given the fact that we're not having any company this week and you're going to mow it again on Saturday, it wasn't a great job, but it's good enough for this. But that would not match the standard that we need if we're having people over. And whenever we talk like that, our kids are thinking – Wow, I have a reasonable parent hmm. that knows the difference between different situations, or and it helps them minimize resentment. I want to add a little bit to the law of diminishing returns, which Mike and I feel is such an important parenting thing to teach your kids to do not their best, but to do what is needed to do the job very well and according to their abilities, um, and to teach them how to do that. You know, if you study 18 hours for a final and you get an A minus and you study four hours for a final and get a B plus and you're not so anxious about everything and you've got a life on in balance, that's what parents need to tell their kids and teach them. As Christian parents, we see certain misbehaviors through a different lens. We call it sin. And um, that's what we say as believers. And we're greatly concerned as parents about our children's spiritual compass, where they're headed. We probably take a measurement maybe 18 times a day of where their compass is set. Are they heading in the right direction? But you believe parents can overreact and even misinterpret a child's behavioral choices. You've touched on that. I do want to get that real specific answer here. What do you mean by that? Calm down. He's not going to be an axe murderer just because of this one incident. They're trying to figure out how life works. Now, if I were to lie or shoplift or something, I would have to take the integrity that I built and set it aside to pull off that behavior. They're not setting their integrity aside to do that. They want to know, okay, well, I'm being taught not to lie, but sometimes um, when mom's on the phone with her sister, she tells a little white lie, and I'm going to experiment with Does lying get me out of trouble? Um, I didn't do my homework for the last two days, and I got ambushed, and I got asked by mom or dad, and I tell dad I did my homework. They're experimenting to see if lies will pay off. 
And they're not setting their integrity aside. They're not losing their moral compass. They're learning how life works. What a different way to look at that, and uh, probably a little less pressure. But you still got to get them motivated in the right direction. Mm -hmm. That's Um, right. In that case, with that liar, if Mm -hmm. I could say it that way, and they're testing it, you want to be careful to label your kids as well, because that's really a Mm shame-based orientation. But if you're seeing that behavior expressed, what's an appropriate consequence in that kind of behavior? Mm -hmm. Well, I think two things. One is just how you approach it is to say, I don't think right now you're telling me the truth. You don't make a generalized comment about the person. Are you saying I'm a liar? The kid might ask. No, I'm saying that Friday probably didn't happen the way you're telling me. (laughs) Because you don't want to label the person. That gets into their psyche. But you can say, I don't think Friday happened the way I was told. Mm. And the best consequence for lying is you, if you're a patient, and all of this involves a certain amount of patience as a parent, but in a week or a couple of days, the kid will say, I'd like to go to the mall and I'd like to go to a movie. And you say to them, I think that's a great idea. I would love to see you do that. But right now, I can't trust that that's what you're going to do. So I can't say yes, because until trust is rebuilt, I don't know for sure you're going to do what you just said. Mm. And a lot of times it doesn't take more than that. And really the importance there is stick to it. Once you've declared it, don't back down because that's that's a bad situation. Then Then the child's learning other things, how to manipulate you. Hey, uh, two or three things right here at the end. Resilience. Um, Why is resilience so important? Well, there's. (laughs) I think it's probably one of the top life skills kids need to learn. What does it provide? Resilience... um, keeps your failures from becoming your defeat. I think that's the most important thing to so remember. So pressing ahead, pressing ahead, fighting through. Getting up, uh, standing up again, trying again. Um, and this is something that parents need to really foster in their children and How encourage do you do that? How do you encourage resilience? I mean, it sounds abstract. How do I well, help is, my child I think it is resilient. abstract, but I think it's coming alongside your kid when they are not doing well or if they failed at something and say, um, you should try this again. I think you can do it. Or like the example of the baseball where he's um, not a very good batter. Come alongside your kid and say, let's go to a batting cage and practice the next couple of weeks and see if that changes things for you. Resilience has to move up the priority list for parents. I hear parents all the time talk more about their appearance of their kid or their achievements than they do their resilience. And we should be looking for every chance that a kid gets knocked down and gets back up. Because that's probably the trait, ultimately, that will determine their effectiveness in life. That's powerful. It's the biggest thing in life. And, you know, if a kid is writing a book report on a computer and they lose it or they don't remember where they saved it, say, you know, the fact that you got a B on your book report is fine. That didn't impress me. But what really impressed me is how when you lost that book report, you went back and rewrote it. And how you got rejected by the boy across the street, and two days later you invited him over. If we watch for resilience, we'll see it in our kids, and we'll foster that. And it'll be right up there with achievements and appearance and other things that we value. That is a good reminder. You also mentioned the joy of being average. (laughs) Okay, everybody's going, what? My kid's on the honor roll. He's not average. Well, there is an epidemic of exceptionality nowadays. Uh, <laughs> I seems. love that, the epidemic of exceptionality. And, and the truth is, just from a statistical standpoint, only about 2 or 3% of kids are 
gifted or exceptional at any one particular thing. But parents really want to gravitate to thinking their kid is special and gifted and exceptional. So it's more about the parent, perhaps, it than is, the child. It is. And Mike tells a story about, um, you know, during pregnancy, moms will go in and people will ask them, how did your OB appointment ultrasound go? And they'll say, really good. I'm just hoping for a real normal kid. And then by age four, that's gone. <laughs> now we want exceptional. Now we want exceptional. I have a quick story about a young little boy, about two weeks old, brought in by his parents. First child, and um, kid checked out perfectly fine. And at the very end, the dad said, I've got a few more questions. What can I be doing now? And he came over and started running, you know, this kid's bicycle legs. He said, what can I do to really promote his athletic ab- two-week-old? promote his athletic ability and make sure that he's going to be a good athlete and what things can I do to visually stimulate him to make sure that he really is good academically. And I looked at the dad and I said, the only thing I want you to do right now is fall in love with this little boy. Mm. There will be time for all of that. Don't worry what college he's going to, if he's going to varsity in basketball or whether he's going to be on the honor roll. Just fall in love. Mm. Fall in love. A sober thing to me that I like to think about is in our culture when um, being exceptional becomes expected, being normal becomes defective. And I think that's what's happened a lot is we're so hungry and so anxious for something to be gifted or exceptional. One, I see teenagers all the time in my practice and one of the biggest insults that I could ever give a teenager is that they're normal. That shouldn't be. Almost 98% of us are normal. Yeah. And it was an unfair thing to create a culture for them to grow up in where being different or being exceptional is the only thing that's celebrated. Yeah. And that's rooted in over-affirmation in our comparison culture. Yeah, boy, these are good things and deep things. And for us as Christian parents, healthy things to apply in our own parenting journey. And you have both done such a wonderful job with your book, GIST, The Essence of Raising Life-Ready Kids. And I want to say thank you for helping equip moms and dads today. And I urge our listeners, uh, you need to get a copy of this powerful book. It's a great resource for parents and grandparents, too. Uh, Michael and Tim, let me thank you uh, so much for your insights and the wonderful work you're doing with parents. And thank you for being our guest these past two days. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And what a great conversation with Michael Anderson and Dr. Timothy Johansson, who were our guests last time and today on Focus on the Family. Get a copy of their book, GIST, when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or donate generously and request the book at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Let me also point out that we have a free parenting assessment for you, which is a really quick online survey to help you see how well your family is functioning. Uh, It might provide you with a suggestion or two about some ways to improve, and I really want to urge you to check that out on the website. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. 
Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.